There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we have an exciting time. You know, we always talk on this show about what it means for your leadership and your style when you reach that point in the career that you've been promoted to a role and it requires you to lead outside of your expertise, meaning your team knows fundamentally more than you're going to know. Well, while there are a lot of components to success, one of the key phenomena you find in those roles is that you're leading people who have a much broader range of styles and perspectives and approaches to facts and temperaments and communication patterns and experiences. So a key part of your success then in leading outside your comfort zone really depends on how well you learn to work with differences. Now, I'm not talking about differences in terms of differences in gender or ethnic background, though that certainly is part of it. I'm really talking about differences in style and approaches and thinking even. And it comes down to how open-minded you can be to those different perspectives. It's usually at this point that people find themselves a little bit uncomfortable And it's the point at which you have to stretch way beyond the ways you've worked up to that point. So today we're going to talk about how do you work with differences, differences in style. So the first part of the show, we want to focus on differences and ways to think about that. We're going to give you a new approach. Then we want to talk about the role of emotional intelligence. And then lastly, I want to turn to talk about how you use assessments, when and where and if. Does this help you on the journey? With me today is Roger Pierman. Roger leads two form, firms, um, Leadership Performance Systems Incorporated, which specializes in talent development services, and also Team Telligent, which provides talent development tools. He works with individuals, teams, and organizations. He's a senior adjunct associate for the Center for Creative Leadership since 1986, a nationally board certified coach, and a very prolific writer. He's written a number of articles for magazines like Inc. and Wired, and Business.com, Performance Management, Talent Management. That's just to name a few. He's a developer of three iPad applications, Teamosity, Relate, and CareerFitosity. And he's the author or senior author on several very well-known books. I'll just hit a couple of them. People Skills Handbook, Action Tips for Improving Your Emotional Intelligence, Personality for Dummies, Emotions and leadership. Also, you being more effective in your MBTI type. Leadership advantage. And one of everyone's favorites, I'm not crazy. I'm just not you. Roger, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you so much, Wanda. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and your audience today. Um, And indeed, I I really like in your introduction, your conversation about the fact that there are these key moments in a manager and executive's life when um, that shift is one that can be very, very uncomfortable when they realize that what's being required of them now to be successful in the role is truly dependent on being able to work effectively with people 
who not only have significantly different expertise, but very, very different styles. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I, um, you know, one of the problems I often get when I'm working with groups or with individuals is a, a leader, especially a newly promoted leader, has a set of expectations about what the work should look like. And often fairly well right, because that's what's gotten them there to that point, and pretty stubborn about what the work should look like, and pretty opinionated about how it should be done. But it doesn't allow any room for a different approach or a different perspective, and it gets them in trouble really, really quickly. Okay, so let's go right into this whole thing about biases and differences. Now, a, a lot of companies are spending time on this thing called unconscious bias, something Daniel Kahneman would argue is actually not very controllable. And I know a lot of my clients, this focus on unconscious bias is now creating a backlash. It's having the opposite intended effect. What I like about what you want to talk about is that you have a different perspective on bias. So how do you think about bias? Well, it's interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, Kahneman's work, as well as a number of others, on the notion of bias, uh, I, I think their main message, which in some ways um, hasn't been fully understood out there, is that biases serve us well. They enable us to be efficient in lots and lots of ways. And um, they're sort of in the nature of being human. And part of the biases that we we carry with us are embedded in our personality in a variety of ways. So, for example, um, we have uh, various biases for different kinds of information. Some individuals are naturally inclined and put a great deal more reliance on um, what they consider to be concrete and specific and highly detailed information. And others are naturally attracted to and inclined to pay attention to what they think of as more conceptual or big picture information. And that, that's, that's, a nat- that's in the nature of um, the way in which an individual just operates in the world. And what I attempt to do, whether it's looking at um, key biases such as a confirmation bias where we are overly reliant on data that confirms our assumptions, um, or we're looking at personality biases, my approach is to get individuals to first acknowledge that those patterns exist, and secondly, to think about um, what are the things we might do to neutralize or balance uh, that particular set of biases that we're looking at. So if we, and let's take another common one, at least one that I see shows up a lot with with managers who are just becoming aware of, of their bias, for example, to be more extroverted in their style, where they they like to sort of share what they're thinking and let everybody know what's on their mind and want to make sure that they um, uh, are what they consider transparent about their views and perspectives. And when they come across an individual who's not that way, um, their internal uh, sort of message to themselves is, well, this person's holding back from me. This person isn't as um, expressive about ideas and, and, and views, and therefore, hmm, maybe I should hmm, be careful about them. They, they, they don't seem to be as forthcoming. Well, 
what I have found is when I enable a, a person to realize that an extroverted orientation is one that just naturally inclines itself to want to talk it out and talk it through, whereas a person who's more introverted in their inclination, they're they're more likely to want to hear the information and and let it settle in their head before they settle on what it is that, that they want to say or what they want to offer. Uh, not long ago, in fact, uh, very specifically, I was with a, a new manager who uh, you know, on a, of a team, and he pulled me aside and he made the statement. He said, you know, and he mentioned the two team members, I, I'm just not sure um, this is going to work very well. They, they just, they're just not very forthcoming. And m- my attitude is people who aren't forthcoming uh, can't be trusted all that much. And I encouraged him to sort of try to put his judgment on hold about that, and let's do an exploration of the value of differences and the value of the way a person's mind might work and what a contribution uh, that person might make. So um, from where I sit, uh, Kahneman's biases and other kinds of biases we carry with us um, really are part of being human and have served us well in many, many ways. And part of our task as, I think, um, uh, learning adults is to be cognizant that the way we see things is a perspective. Um, There may be other additional perspectives that can be equally valuable uh, and that we need to find ways to uh, really encourage those different perspectives. And, and, And I guess to sort of bring this this particular piece to a, um, a key point, that all of us know that at the end of the day, leadership is about how we um, are able to foster a sense of direction with the group, how we get people aligned to that direction, and what we do to inspire and elevate commitment toward uh, the direction that we have, whether it's with a team or a business group or um uh, even if it's just a department where we're trying to get people directed to a particular set of outcomes. And if we treat everybody the same, meaning um, communicate with them exactly the same way, we are likely to lose some of the alignment and certainly likely to lose some of the commitment that we desperately need to be successful. So learning about our differences and learning about those differences in constructive ways um can help us achieve uh, the sort of leadership objectives and business objectives that that everybody has it's um <clears throat> i think you're right about that it's sort of hard you know i talked to so many leaders who believe that being fair and equitable which is all a good thing no discredit to that means that you treat everyone the same <clears throat> and they struggle they get surprised when i say that's the last thing you need to do So, yes, you do need to be fair and equitable, but it isn't about interacting with everybody in the exact same way. And that comes as a bit of surprise. I think you're right. This whole notion of not treating everyone the same is going to lose some alignment, and it certainly loses commitment. And I also think it doesn't make trust possible. So um, I want to come back to something you said, too, because I think it's really true. Kahneman's research, Kahneman and Antropersky's research, really started as understanding the biases as shortcuts in how we think that are efficient. They really do save time. And we have all of their decision-making biases that have been researched and talked about 
like confirmation biases, but we also have biases in the way in which I see the world, like the ones you've talked about, the extroverted or the more introverted bias, or the more detail-oriented or the more big picture. So, Roger, when you think about biases and work with organizations, what are the big ones you like to call out for a leader to be conscious of? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Typically, when I'm working with a a group of leaders and we're we're exploring um, our communication styles, for example, I I remind uh, the group that, yes, indeed, human beings are unique, just like our fingerprints. (laughs) However, our fingerprints, we can organize according to the lines of loop, whirls, accidental lines, and arches. And that doesn't mean we've taken anything away from the uniqueness, but we've identified a pattern, and we've identified significant patterns that we need to be attuned to and responsive to in order to achieve the kinds of things uh, we we want to achieve. And I encourage, um, first and foremost, a manager or a leader of a group to attempt to identify the patterns of the people they're working with and um, get a handle on what are some of the key differences in their approaches and their styles, and then start asking for feedback, asking for um, what are the ways I can work effectively with you, I can partner with you to help both of us be successful, what are the kinds of rules of engagement we need in order to leverage your best thinking and your best approach. Um, and in that way, at least from my way of working with folks, I found that if we celebrate what those gifts are that people bring to a challenge um, and the perspective you have, which has been fashioned by experience, is certainly uh, an important gift to an organization or to a team, uh, if I can get them to realize that that the value of those differences are really important to um, welcome into, if you will, the team or uh, the department or the business or on the task that we have in mind, then we create a um, an environment that's safe. And when people give feedback and they ask for what they need, we create a success spiral rather than a distrust spiral um, that can often happen. And to your question about the biggest bias that tends to show up, and it's it's really uh, one that won't be surprising to to listeners, Uh, managers get, get to be managers because they are spectacularly able to analyze and critique and uh, to organize information and prioritize information. And uh, we all know that's very, very important. The manager that gets to be exceptional is the manager who not only is aware that she or he tends to do that all the time, they see things through the lens of critique, um, and the, the outstanding manager realizes that she or he needs to be attentive to um, the interpersonal dynamics and interpersonal needs of those on whom they depend to be successful. And so the bias for being, if you will, extremely critical and analytical, which is obviously important, um, but <laughs> hasn't been polished and balanced with, in many, many cases, 
um, this the skill and the competency that is needed to uh, be attentive to the different needs of those people around them, and as I said, on whom they depend in order to get things achieved and accomplished. And what, one of the <laughs> interesting uh, in my coaching with people. Um, one of the things I almost always wind up saying to them in one fashion or the other is, you know, um, you really cannot talk yourself out of what you have behaved yourself into. (laughs) And if you do not attend to the behavior, um, I know in, in your head leader, you've got, you got a lot of, a lot of narration going on in there. But if you don't attend to your behavior and, and in your behavior show um, empathetic regard, then you aren't going to get the maximum commitment from your people. You aren't going to get the environment that fosters innovation. You are not going to get um, the best of those people whom you so cautiously, carefully um, and methodically brought into the situation. So... Um, I I would say if there is one that I constantly find that elevating, helping the leader identify, and then realize that um, they do have a bias for critique, and that should not be at the exclusion of uh, learning how to be more um, uh, empathetic in their regard for other people and in the way they communicate that. I love that one. It's a great, um, I certainly see that all the time because sort of what gets you to this stage is your ability to see what's wrong and go out and fix what's wrong. And our educational system, I would argue, pretty much in all of the Western world, teaches people to find the problem and fix the problem. And that sets us up, even if it wasn't my bias to start with, the ones who have this bias for critique are going to do pretty well. And so I agree with you. And that's, I love the way you say that, that it's about attending to the interpersonal needs of those people whom you depend on. Great statement. <clears throat> okay. And I'm going to just have to repeat this last one because I thought it was a great one, Roger. I'm going to steal it from you from this point forward, that you cannot talk yourself out of what you have behaved yourself into. I have a client at the moment who would do well to attend to exactly that that issue. <clears throat> There's nothing you're going to say after what you've done that's going to um, make it all okay again. All right, fair enough. Um, so we've talked about biases in several different ways. We've talked about biases as a positive thing. We've talked about some personality biases. We've talked about some decision biases like confirmation biases. And we've talked about extroversion bias. We've talked about critique bias. We've talked about bias for detail, all of which are really, really important ones. And there are others that we could say. And you said at the very start here that the focus, the way you move forward is both to acknowledge the bias that you have and then to take an action to neutralize it. Can you give me an example of what it means or how you neutralize? Mm-hmm. Uh, two, two, two ways. One is, um, and, and I encourage the folks I work with to create what I call little experiments. <laughs> Um, uh, for example, a person who is uh, quite extroverted and um, who's also quite critical uh, in the way they come into a meeting and they immediately start telling the team they're with, okay, we've got these five issues, we've got these 
primary problems around these issues, and here's what I think the best solutions are. Um, and then they're, po- they're sort of concerned why other people aren't engaged or why other people aren't contributing or why are we getting more useful ideas from these people. We pay them to help us solve uh, problems. And when I give them feedback and I say, well, in this 50-minute meeting I just observed, you talked 45 minutes and um, – you never really ask them their opinion. So why don't we create a little experiment to see if, in fact, uh, if I get you to do some things different, you see how it affects the group. And, of course, I know for many people, when I say these things, I think, well, surely it's more complicated. (laughs) And in some ways, yes, it is. But when I get them to, to go ahead and test out the idea that they come into the room and they ask the group, um, you've seen or heard about the five issues we're dealing with, and, and I'm more interested in your take on what are possible solutions. And then, you know, I'm sure many of the folks you've been around have, have heard about the, the word weight. I, I have them put it on a little three-by-five card and carry it with them, and I remind them it means, why am I talking? Um <laughs> So it, it is a cue that they should hold and wait and ask the question about other people's perspectives. So I, I help them create little experiments so they can actually see um, the change in the impact uh, on others when they make a shift in, in their behavior that way. Um, it also works um, and when you're thinking about decision-making biases, such as any number of the ones that Kahneman identified. and and I, and I think, and it's funny, uh, if people have seen Kahneman's interviews, they know that he says, I go in all the time and I help individuals and organizations identify these biases and then they do nothing with it. Well, <laughs> they, uh, my view is they do nothing with it because um, they, they don't have a strategy for, well, okay, so, so I'm, I'm setting up a decision-making process that's flawed. How do I fix that? And what I found helpful is that if I can get uh, managers in a group to begin to ask questions like, um, what are the ways in which we can create um, a test of, of very different assumptions about the problem we're looking at? What, what would it mean if we, we did some scenario thinking? And the scenario thinking has to take into account some radically different assumptions about what it is we're trying to attend to and solve. And what I found interesting is when I just give them a list of questions, and I have sometimes just basic 10 questions to get them to do some double checking in the way in which they've collected data, they've analyzed data, um, they've identified options and priorities and the criteria they've applied to those, just probing that a little bit and getting them to be cognizant of the importance of um, thinking on, if you will, the, on the issues from another perspective entirely is a way that helps them um, realize that, oh, yeah, you know, I over-relied on data from such and such group. And while they've been good in the past, I, I didn't pay as much attention to the information that had been generated by this other department. And I, I, I need to take a look at that because that's, that may mean I'm losing some opportunities uh, to help a group make a better decision. So um, 
as I said to recap on this, my strategies is really pretty much to help people create what I call mini experiments to test out their assumptions and to test out if you did something different, what would that look like? Because I found that people can make incremental adjustments a whole lot easier than they can make um, what we might think of as a significant large adjustment in their behavior. If I can get them to be slightly mindful and I can get them to be attentive in a small way to a shift, um, then then great things happen because they, they'll come back the next week or in our next conversation and say, you know, the most amazing thing happened when I was in that meeting and I just asked, well, how do you folks think we should approach this problem? Holy cow, I didn't realize there were so many different options and possibilities. <laughs> um, simple shift, but huge impact. Um, and they begin to realize that becoming more self-aware um, and realizing how their own head works, which is why being cognizant of bias is so it can be so valuable for a leader. If, if I become more increasingly self-aware and I understand how my mindset and my behaviors impact my team and those people around me, I now have a, a very intelligent choice. Um, instead of things happening by accident, if I am aware of these things, I now can begin to choose um, what is it that I think um, I might need to do as the leader of a group in order to foster the kind of commitment and alignment um, that produces the effectiveness and satisfaction that people want. You know, um, I'm sure many listeners have paid attention to the Google Aristotle Project material that that came out uh, uh, a year ago in a couple of popular presses, and uh, it was fascinating to read lots of reactions to that research, which was to say that teams within Google that worked most effectively were teams in which they experienced, uh, quote, psychological safety. The, the willingness and the ability to express an opinion without fear <clears throat> that you're going to be critically judged or negatively judged and that your ideas will be given at least a fair opportunity to be heard. Um, and golly, wow, teams and groups that have that kind of safety, you know, outperform and outshine everybody else. Well, how do you create psychological safety? It, it begins with the leader being fully cognizant of her or his own uh, biases in their style and their way of thinking and accepting that there are positive outcomes of those and there's some potential unintended outcomes of those becoming increasingly aware of those unintended outcomes and adjusting accordingly. Great. I am, hold on, I've got to make sure I get my notes on this one and then adjust accordingly. I love that. It's about creating psychological safety and a reminder, psychological safety is when I feel that I am not being critically judged. We come back to that critical bias for critique, that my ideas will at least be given a fair hearing. And I get that as a leader because I am fully conscious of my biases. I'm aware of the outcomes and I'm willing to make small adjustments. Roger, that's a pretty powerful statement. And it strikes me that those of us who seek to find more inclusive cultures or cultures where people are more engaged or whether there's better innovation, there is the answer, psychological safety. 
Okay, we're going to take a break. With me today is Roger Pierman. Um, Roger leads two companies, Leadership Performance Systems and Team Intelligent. You can find him on his website at www.leadership-systems.com. He's the author of a bunch of books, as you've just heard, and two in particular that we've been talking around. One is called You, Being More Effective in Your MBTI Type, and the second one is I'm Not Crazy, I'm Just Not You. So we'll be right back. When we come right back, I want to talk about the role of emotional intelligence in all of this because that's a part of what it takes to create psychological safety. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. And with Roger Pierman today, Roger leads two firms, Leadership Performance Systems Incorporated, focused on talent development services, and Team Intelligence, focused on talent development tools. He's also a senior adjunct associate at the Center for Creative Leadership since 1986, the author of a bunch of books, and the developer of three iPad applications, Teamosity, Relate, and Career Fitosity. And we've just been talking about, I think the most important thing from the first segment in my mind is that there is a point in your career which the way you're going to succeed and get the results that you're looking for really involves your ability to work with people who have a quite different perspective, get the best of them, get their commitment, and get them aligned behind the direction that the team is trying to go towards. And that comes down to both recognizing your differences, differences in perspective, recognizing your own biases, and being able to adapt in small ways that allow other people to work in their ways. And we just talked about the importance of psychological safety, creating a space where people feel that they're not judged and that their um, ideas are at least going to be given some airtime. All right, so Roger, I want to talk and talk uh, for a minute about emotional intelligence. I know you have written a lot on this one and are a big, big, big supporter behind the emotional intelligence what does it mean to you? Why does it matter? And how does this all fit in this story of understanding how to work with differences? Mm. Well, it, it, this is uh, one of those um, 
what I think of as ongoing emerging field in our in the development field in the development world, and, and it's emerging in a variety of ways. One, um, we we know that emotion is um, absolutely essential to all um, decisions that human beings make. Whenever an individual has any sort of brain damage to the amygdala and or associated structures, they become incapable of making a decision. And what that tells us is, is that in deeply embedded in all of our perceptions and deeply embedded in, in our judgments is some element of emotive energy that helps us evaluate, prioritize, and focus. And so um, I, when I think of emotional intelligence, uh, I think of those things which enhance our perceptions and um, enable us to really make sounder judgments as it relates to the people we're with and, in fact, in our own health and well-being. Um, one of the things that um, has been fascinating to me as the field has emerged there have been multiple new tools, psychological tools, assessment tools um, that have been created to try to tap into what does it really mean to be able to perceive emotions effectively, not only in yourself but in others. What does it mean to manage your emotional reactions to things, and what do you do um, to intentionally foster um a, a good use of the emotional energy of those, those people around you. And because it's such an incredibly complex topic and one that, um, for which I, I, I don't think we have what I would call conclusive answers <laughs> in terms of what precisely is it in compared to some other things that we, we might be able to say. What I know for sure, based on all the evidence that's that we have up to now is that uh, emotional intelligence is most assuredly about the ability to perceive emotions in ourselves and others and the ability to manage that emotional energy in ourself and respond appropriately to others for constructive purposes. Now, what I can tell you is that, um, and I'll, I'll use a very public example, and I'll use it only because it's been written about many, many times, and, and I've, I have the privilege of uh, working uh, with um, uh, a Ford Motor Company for years when Alan Mulally was president, and Alan Mulally was a gentleman, is a gentleman who, when he approaches individuals, he approaches them with such authenticity and uh, immediate um, sort of optimism and a very mindful um, approach to the person, each and every person, and he, he, he listens to them and responds to them in ways that shows that he is extremely interested. He's very patient with how other people are explaining the issue and how he helps them problem-solve in a very compassionate, um, assertive, and tough business-minded, but nonetheless uh, truly openness uh, with other people. And I I've, would use him as an example of how an um, incredibly emotionally intelligent leader, 
took a business that was remarkably um, on the edge of, of bankruptcy to a business that uh, thrived during the years in which he was a leader. There are other leaders I could point to that I've had the chance to work with over the years who exhibit this remarkable ability to uh, read their environment, to, to show the kind of focus uh, in their communication with other people that uh, lets you know they heard not just the content of what you said, but the emotional energy underneath that content. Um, and want to be with the individual in a way that shows regard for um, how that information is being shared. So, uh, and, and I'm I'm thinking of just one leader after the other who's, who's able to use those kinds of skills um, that anybody looking at it would say, well, you know, that's fairly that's that's remarkable. Um, in that person's emotional intelligence. Now, the other part of your question, not only, as I heard it, not only were you asking um, why is it important, what is it, and why is it important, I found um, uh, in the People's Skills Handbook, which you mentioned a little bit ago, three other writers and I, we began the research process of asking basically the question, what are all the behaviors associated with um, working with other people that are connected to the use of emotional energy? And after we, for four years of work, looking at all kinds of research journals and uh, just every possible uh, juried research piece we could find, we settled on 54 behaviors um, that seemed to be consistently related to how well a person was effective with other people and how well they managed themselves, if you will, in ways that allowed them to be healthy and constructive um, in taking care of themselves, their families, and and those that they worked with. And what's true, and, and anybody who's worked with a whole array of managers knows that when you're an individual contributor, there are certain kinds of qualities that you most definitely need to be able to show and communicate in your working with the other individual contributors around you. When you become a manager and you are now working with such an array of differences, everything from the gender, ethnic, racial differences, generational differences we know, um, suddenly EQ-related qualities like uh, flexibility and adaptability, knowing what collaboration is all about um, and how to use collaborative energies to um, help people uh, gain insight and to shift perspective when needed to, to maximize um, the, the skills of folks in the room. Those differences, and, and my point being, when we're at one point in our career, certain kinds of EQ skills are more important um, than in other times in our career. And it isn't a unified uh, one set of skills that will absolutely get you from point A to point B, except for two. Um, and that is that those who develop the capacities uh, to be generous listeners and to communicate with empathetic regard, no matter where they are in organizations, tend to be the high performers. 
generous listeners and communicate with empathetic regard. All right. Generous listeners, I can get quite easily. That means I listen with patience, exactly as you said about Alan Malahi at Ford. And I give people time. What do you mean by communicate with empathetic regard? Yeah. And and I'm going to answer that in a couple of ways. Um, You know, it's interesting. When when, um, I have read books about great leaders, almost always, if the word charisma gets used in, in the description and you start peeling away, well, what do people mean by charisma? When I've been with uh, folks in other organizations and they say so-and-so is incredibly charismatic, I, I will ask them, I'll say, well, what is it that she, what does she do that gives you that sense that she's charismatic? And in every single case um, that I've found so far, What people will say is, when I'm talking with her, I am absolutely confident that she is not only listening to me, but she's responding to me as though she's really heard what I've said, and she's responded to me in a way that says, I'm significant, I'm competent and capable, and I'm worthwhile in this situation that we're in. And that they do it in a way that gives that kind of focus. And it, it, and it could be a simple message um, where I am saying to you um, how much I appreciate what you have brought to this particular situation and how important I feel that is to help us move forward. And I might say there are some additional questions we need to pursue together. Uh, to make sure we cover all the bases. As the leader, I may know that the person has only answered half the question. Well, if I know they've answered half the question and I have confidence in their capacities to answer the whole question, are they going to learn more by me being supportive and showing my regard for what they've brought to the table and learn how to solve this kind of problem more rapidly in the future or they're going to learn more if I just tell them. My experience, and I think the experience of any seasoned leader, is that you um, show that regard. You show and you communicate the appreciation for what the person has brought to the table, and you invite them to work collaboratively with you in partnership to work through the rest of the problem or the rest of the issue so that they learn and they feel as though um, they have been fully uh, acknowledged and appreciated for what they brought to the table. I, I think, and I, 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 if someone has evidence to the contrary, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing it. I think it's true. Every time a report is done about people leaving jobs, the number one message is people leave managers, they don't leave jobs. <laughs> And there are obviously some cases where people do leave a job because it, for a variety of reasons, but the vast majority of people change in their uh, work setting primarily because they do not feel that they have had an interaction with the manager where their capabilities, talents, and skills have been appreciated, respected, um, and if you will, uh, this communication of regard for uh, what they brought to the table in whatever fashion that has been provided. 
so that is the way in which I would I would frame my uh, <laughs> notion about empathetic regard, demonstrating it. And so you said a lot in that one, Roger. I just want to make one little final comment that you said people leave managers, not jobs. Actually, it goes the other direction. People stay in jobs that they're somewhat bored with because of the manager and stay committed like because of the manager. <laughs> yeah, I like that okay. too. That's, that's, okay. that's good. <laughs> All right. Now, you know, people often, we often talk about charisma, and sometimes I think we've been calling that executive presence. I'm not so sure there's all that much difference between the two at the end of the day, maybe a few things, but certainly charisma is a part of executive presence. And you said every case you know, when you ask people, why does that person have charisma, that you have the sense that the person is listening to you and responding to you in a way that makes you feel heard, significant, competent and worthwhile that they appreciate what you've brought they value the perspective and they're willing to work with you through whatever else it is that you might have missed or not missed or no one has thought about but that creates that kind of environment Um, and in some ways Roger isn't that what psychological safety is about certainly um that would be an aspect of it, no doubt. The the person is likely to feel um, psychological safety uh, when you've done those kinds of things. And, of course, um, what you and I both are painfully aware of is it's, it's easy to say that this is our goal, creating psychological safety, or this is our goal to create that kind of communication. Um, we we know that it's, it takes um, a great deal of, work for a person to become who's really serious about leading. Now, I, I, I'm going to say if, if you're really serious about leading people uh, and making a contribution where you've brought forth from them their talent, skills, and capabilities, then you really have to begin with a good understanding of who you are and that means assessing, getting assessed, if you will, informally and formally. And by that, I mean asking people for feedback, seeking an understanding of when I just led this meeting, I'd like to know what are the things that went really well with the way I led the meeting, what are some things I might need to tweak, creating mechanisms for people to do that, or, or taking, uh, intentionally asking for opportunities to take um, an appropriate assessment tool um, where you can, in fact, get some insights into your um, your style, your mindset, your perspective. Um, I, you know, I, I um, um, know that lots of tools get used, and I sometimes worry that we've become assessment-saturated in the leadership development space because there's now an assessment tool for almost everything. They're not all equally good, though, in the way they've been developed and in the quality of feedback they provide. But my point being, people who are really serious about wanting to understand what do I need to do if I genuinely want to lead others, what do I need to do to expand my, um, if you will, self-regulation, expand this awareness of self, and in so doing, increase my opportunities to relate to and work well with others. Um, and I, I think that when I, uh, over the years, in fact, I, 
just recently um, released a, a tool called the personality, the Pyramid Personality Integrator. It's intended to help people get a handle on the very basic ways in which they use their their mental resources. Um, and like other tools, I mean, it's, it's like other tools that are designed to help people, um, you know, think about their style and think about their mindset and their perspectives and the ways in which those kinds of things impact the world around them um, in order to, you have to have a starting base to realize what I might need to tweak in order to be more effective in the setting that I'm in and be more fulfilled in the work that I do. Right, right. So we come back again to this whole notion of taking every conceivable available opportunity to understand how you think, how you construct the world, how people react to you, whether that's an assessment tool or a feedback process or an assessment center even for that matter, to increase your awareness about yourself. And then using that to be able to expand your own self-regulation as well as to make these small experiments as you described small adaptations, and see how those work. Okay? That's right. Yeah. And, I, again, I'm, I am very aware that uh, in the brevity of our conversation that um, for many individuals, um, the tweak that they need to do for them may feel like uh, they're being asked to jump across the Grand Canyon um, and the reason why I, I say the little experiments is that they realize that, um, well, a little adjustment here and there is, has gotten me some pretty significant rewards very quickly, so maybe I can make a few more. Because when people begin to blend those adjustments in the way they operate, um, the, they discover that uh, others take notice, and in fact, um, they move further along towards success uh, of the kinds of things they want to achieve. Okay. Now, Roger, as we're talking about assessments, and I think you're right, there's a lot of them, and I know some of my clients get a little assessment weary. I often figure we're not, we don't know what we're talking about if we don't have some sort of mirror to look at it or some sort of you know, structure to talk about it, and an assessment gives you that one. You mentioned one that you've developed, the Pyramid Personality Integrator. Do you have other favorites that you think are particularly worth paying attention to? Yeah. Well, and in my mind, one of the things that I will do is I'll, I'll, um, when I'm asked to consult with organizations and they say, look, what kind of criteria should we use to evaluate how strong or how useful a tool is? And I will also ask them, what is your ultimate goal uh, in the kind of uh, leadership development program that you have? So, for example, if a key goal in a leadership development program is for individuals to become aware of the differences in their style with the people that they work with, certainly the Myers-Briggs type indicator has been one that's been used to help people see in real uh, pragmatic terms how those differences uh, exist. If we're exploring emotional intelligence, there are a couple of robust tools that are um, depending on, again, what you're trying to achieve in your organization. A, a tool called the Mesquite, for example, which is the Mayer-Salovey-Caruso emotional intelligence test, <laughs> 
is um, uh, what uh, is often considered a capabilities test. You 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 have images to look at. You identify the emotion that the image elicits. You you either understand that emotion or you don't. And so. Um, as you go through the instrument, you are put in a variety of those kinds of stimuli or items. Um, then you get a report that identifies your e- perceiving capabilities of emotional differences as well as um, how you've evaluated some situations um, that have emotions involved. Uh, the EQI is a tool that's very popular. People want to get a particular set of numbers on skills, a particular set of skills that can contribute. If if you're into the self-discovery space, um, the EQ dashboard allows individuals that, that who want to go through a process where they look deeply into the behaviors, they can do a self-rating, they can also do a multi-rater rating, um, they can choose to do that if they want to, but it's a very different kind of process where a person is sort of educated on the key behaviors as they work through the self-discovery and they get a profile report, as all these tools uh, do create, um, that, are, that are important to you. Now, to the previous question, though, and one that I think is really important is, how do I evaluate whether or not a tool is worthwhile? And the very first question that a professional needs to ask, and it wouldn't hurt for managers to ask this, is um, how thorough is the technical guide? And does the technical guide show us that there have been efforts to um, identify the framework of the model, the data that were collected? Do they show reliability of the model? Do they show that there's some efforts to measure the validity of the tool, and there are a couple of ways that you can do that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are there in- interpretation guidelines and key data uh, summaries? So just having those as a quick checklist can help you evaluate uh, the strength of a tool. Fabulous, Roger. Well, Roger, not too surprisingly, we're kind of out of time at this point. Those are some powerful um, information for people. I just want to reevaluate because a lot of folks want to know, should I be using this tool or another tool or so on? And you said, ask the following questions. Is there a thorough technical guide about the instrument? Is there a clear framework? Is there an attempt to measure the reliability and validity? Is there an interpretation guide? And are there data summaries so we know biases? in the data or trends and norms in the data. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, With me today is Roger Pierman. Roger leads two companies, uh, Leadership Performance Systems and Team Team Intelligence. You can find more about Roger's work and his writing and his books at www.leadership-systems.com. Roger, thanks for being with us today. It was a fabulous show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it and enjoyed it, Wanda. Take care. All right. And I think the thing that I really take away out of all this one that strikes me is this whole notion about how we create psychological safety and the tactics that we've been talking about how to go about doing that. Join us next week um, for yet another episode. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.